Today marked a noticeable shift in the literal nature of the trip. The focus of the destinations became almost exclusively interesting because of the physical beauty rather than the historical significance. I've always thought that the areas out west, you know, like near the mountains, Montana, Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and the like, have some of the most incredible nature to offer in the entire world, period. I would put the nature in those states head-to-head with anywhere else in the world. It's truly mind-blowing, and I look forward to sharing this part of the trip with you. Also, shout out at It's Devin. That's I-T-S-D-E-V-Y-N. She gave me literally a dozen recommendations during the trip, and I wanted to make sure that I mentioned her. I'm Giulio Gallarotti, and this is Pack Light Season 1, a COVID-friendly road trip. I woke up at 6 a.m. ready to make moves. No pod today, which meant I could get on the road right away. And I had, as you might have already guessed, a very long day ahead of me. The big storm, which I heard cracking through the night, had successfully washed off the car. Sweet. I'm fine with storms usually, unless there's some kind of tornado threat. I've seen some small ones driving across the Midwest before. And like I said at the end of last episode, summer typically isn't tornado time, It's spring, usually. But just like anything, people who are used to them aren't that scared of them, which is funny to me. There's a great meme of a guy mowing his lawn with an enormous tornado happening in the background. Hans's wife, Audrey, says that you just have to go somewhere without windows or a basement or something, and you'll be fine. I saw on local TV that there was a low likelihood of tornadoes this week, according to this tornado index. But the existence of a tornado index in general just shows you how frequently they happen out here. Whenever you visit somewhere new, you should always watch local programming if you can. The commercials and just how they do it give a unique insight into how people live there. got in the car. It felt like the sun had just come up. But now I had a fresh, clean windshield, and I was ready to hit it. The no-pod situation was underratedly huge. I could make some serious time getting such an early start. Now, I never drank that beer, which is probably a good thing. And I didn't need it. For the moment, I seemed to feel okay as per the typical trend. But I definitely did not sleep well, or enough, between the creepy room, the loud weather, the TV still being on because I was scared of the bugs. I'm aware that that doesn't make sense, by the way, but for some reason, having the TV on made me feel more at ease or something. And let's not forget to mention a mild fear of the coronavirus. Those things all contributed to my mediocre night's sleep. I tried diving into a couple more podcasts. I even reached out to my pal, Katie Margulies, for some pod recommendations. And while some were pretty good, 1619 just hit different, as the kids say. The vibe music-wise for the next couple days would definitely be Gunna's Wanna album, which I found very relaxing and soothing. And it felt good throughout the day. The song Yosemite, from the Travis Scott album Astroworld, is the quintessential road trip song in my opinion. Especially once you're out west into the mountainous terrain. They must have known that since they named the song after one of the western national parks, Yosemite. 
The remainder of the trip was very much about exciting nature and nature patterns and mountains. This was my favorite type of terrain, personally. I'm likely not alone there, at least when it comes to the US. Something about the size of everything out west is just so spectacular. Everything seems like five times bigger, even the sunsets. There hadn't been any real lulls yet in the trip, and I was proud of that. That morning, I had made another strong executive decision. And that was to drive directly from where I was to Rapid City, South Dakota, where I would spend the night. I would hit the two spots in Western Nebraska that looked cool. Scott's Bluff, which was a big, cool rocks coming out of the ground situation. Followed by the Agate Fossil Beds. A nice and hopefully easy two destination day. 569 miles total. A lot, but pretty standard at this point. I had essentially not taken David Chain's extremely good advice, but I had my sights on Illinois, evening of July 3rd, and so far the trip had been executed fairly well. As I pulled out of the hotel in Kansas, I noticed a funny sign at the gas station next door. It said, quote, this is our price, no games. <laughs> I was just thinking, who's the uppity farmer coming in here trying to bargain over the already low gas price? None of your games today, Fred. The price is the price. <laughs> it was two thirteen per gallon, by the way, which seems very affordable. Whatever. Definitely not the weirdest sign I'd seen on this trip. I woke up to two hilarious developments on my phone. The first, one of my followers had sent me $20 to go towards my ticket that I had gotten in Mark, Texas, which I found hilarious, and I appreciated. Shout out Adam Ahrens for that. The caption read, Ah, oh, fuck! <laughs> which I let my buddy pee tattoo on my leg. I've talked about it on a couple podcast segments, and there's some videos about it floating around, so that tattoo is fairly well known, at least for me. The second was a very unique cameo request. One of the reasons I even decided to do this podcast is because I decided people enjoy the way that I tell stories, for whatever reason. So I've leaned into it a bit. So my cameo requests usually include some kind of can you tell me a story theme, but this one was more specific. I forgot exactly what it said, and I can't look back at it for some reason in the app, but it said something like this. My nephew turned 15 yesterday, he accidentally burned down half of the side of the house with fireworks. Given your experience in this matter, I figured you could maybe help cheer him up. <laughs> what a coincidence, given that I would be, unknowingly, cutting through Colorado today en route to Nebraska. My buddy RJ lives in Denver and had been lobbying me to bring him along for Wyoming and all that, but I had made it this far alone and I decided that I needed to do this solo. So anyway, as far as the fireworks go, I'll go ahead and tell you that story. Here goes. It was the summer of 2015, and my friend's parents were sending him to the West Coast for an internship. They offered to pay for my entire trip if I were to drive his car across the country to bring it to him. Now they're pretty wealthy, and they were being nice in that they knew I would enjoy the drive. I could keep whatever cash I didn't spend, 
and I could spend some time with their son, who happened to be a good friend of mine. All things that were good for me, because ultimately shipping the car would have cost much less than that cost, sending me over there. I didn't give myself anywhere near enough time to complete the trip. I was married to the delusion that I had to be back in NYC so that I didn't miss out on any comedy opportunities, which just wasn't the case. And now that the pandemic's happened and I've had so much more time, I'm realizing that I don't need to be so crazy about doing comedy all the time, at least for me personally. Anyway, I convinced my pal Benny D to come with me, though he had lost his driver's license, which would mean I would have to drive the entire way. But I am grateful he came, and he literally didn't sleep the entire drive. He was a great companion. We drove 1,055 miles in one sitting from NYC to St. Louis, taking the long way so we could see West Virginia. And we left New York at 2 p.m., which was a crazy undertaking that would make me exhausted for the rest of the way. But also, I've literally never met anybody before, even like a commercial truck driver, who's driven that far at once. I think they cap you at a certain amount of distance when you're driving commercially. So if anybody happened to drive further than that at once, please let me know because so far I've never met anyone. I did have a little help from Adderall, which I was downing like candy, a medication that I've since given up. But anyway, the trip was as follows. NYC to St. Louis, the long way. The next day, St. Louis to Omaha, Nebraska. Then Omaha to outside of Yellowstone, stopping at Mount Rushmore to shoot the Lil Young Big video, Captain America, on the 4th of July. From there, we went from Yellowstone to Northern Montana, right near the border of Canada. Then from Northern Montana to Portland, Oregon, followed by Portland, Oregon to San Francisco. An absolutely bonkers itinerary. Five nights for all that. Pretty, like, just stupid. <laughs> anyway, when we made it to Wyoming, similar to this drive, there were firework stands everywhere. Benny, being the experienced pyro, was chomping at the bit to hit the fireworks hard. He went in there and with 20 bucks bought all sorts of crazy stuff. He even bought what he called daytime fireworks, where little army men exploded out of the firework and parachuted down to the ground. We would stop every once in a while and light some off. And then when we reached his parents' house in Portland, Oregon, we let off a few more in the cul-de-sac at their house. After that, we parted ways. I dropped the car off in San Francisco with my boy Eddie with the remaining fireworks, which I left at his house. Anyway, I came back to New York and wouldn't shut up about my experience. And Eddie caught wind of this and decided that he too wanted to do the road trip. I really didn't have it in me to do another grind like that. Five nights with crazy detours. But his parents, again, made a very tempting offer, cash. And money, as it was through most of my 20s, was very tight, so I needed it. So I said, fine, let's do it. Flew back to California. And on the way out the door from Eddie's apartment in San Francisco, I remembered to grab the fireworks. I had never used fireworks in my life, but it didn't seem like it could be that difficult. And watching Benny do it, I thought I can surely figure out how to do that. So fast forward to the infamous day. staying at the Stein Erickson in Deer Valley, Utah, right in Park City, a gorgeous ski town where they hold the Sundance Film Festival, and it's also an underrated summer destination in my opinion. When we checked into the hotel, we brought our bags of fireworks with us for some reason, and the guy behind the desk said, huh, fireworks, huh? 
were you guys just in Wyoming? And we were like, yeah, man. You know, it just seemed pretty innocent at the time. I woke up early that morning to take a yoga class. I can't believe I did yoga that morning. But anyway, later that day, we were somewhere in Western Colorado, I think. We were on our way to stay at the Stanley Hotel, where The Shining was filmed. It's funny, I had just looked on the map and there were two routes that we could have taken. One that went through Wyoming, and I, I really wish we had gone that way. But we chose the route that went through Colorado. Whatever. Anyway, it was mid-afternoon, and I decided I was bored, and that we should pull over and shoot off some fireworks. So we try one, and it sort of malfunctions and doesn't work, whatever. We try another one, and it doesn't even light. I was like, damn, well, either these suck or I just don't know what I'm doing. So we try a third one, and it malfunctioned too, but it sort of lit off. And when it came back into the ground right next to us, mind you, this firework literally cost $1. It was tiny and seemed harmless. It wasn't some huge, crazy thing. It was small, $1. But when it hit the ground, it started a very small fire in the grass. So we tried to put it out, but it wouldn't go out. I started trying to stomp it out, you know, a little more frantically and a little more frantically, and, and it just kept growing. I took a bottle of water and tried to throw it on the grass. But nothing was happening. It just wouldn't go out. And it was slowly starting to spread. We panicked. We didn't know what to do. So we just got in the car and drove away. I realize how terrible that sounds, but hear the story out and then you can make your judgments. We got about three or four miles down the road and I realized that the bottle that I had thrown into the grass had the Stein Erickson logo on it. I remember walking into the hotel with the fireworks in our hands, proudly bragging about our intention to light them off. And I thought, if they found that bottle and the fire gets crazy, we're going to be in really, really big trouble. So I told Eddie, listen, man, we just got to go back to the fire and get that bottle at the very least. Hopefully it's gone out by now. So anyway, we went back, like most guilty criminals do, to the scene of the crime. And lo and behold, the fire had spread a lot. It was gigantic. It must have been five football fields big. My heart sank. Now, before you judge me, just remember that I really had no idea that the fire was going to grow the way that it did. I just had no idea what was going to happen. I had no concept of forest fires, and I, I was just completely unaware. And that was really stupid of me, but it's just true. Nothing about what I did was cool or okay, and I really like to think that I've learned my lesson, paid the price, and have grown as a person from this experience. I'm sure there are people listening to this whose communities have been affected by fires, started just as stupidly by just as stupid of people as me. It must be painful to listen to this. I know how serious what I did was, and I truly regret it. I sincerely mean it. I am so sorry, and I hope that you can all forgive me. And at the time, I wasn't even thinking too much about the big picture yet. I thought maybe we wouldn't get in trouble for some reason. We pulled up to where we had pulled over previously and where our tire tracks were still, as we had sped away before. There were two good Samaritans who had pulled over to check it out and who had called the police. So I get out of the car and I'm like, playing dumb. I'm like, oh man, <laughs> what happened here? And they were nice. They were like, oh, I don't know, fire started up. Make sure you stand back, sir. But I could see the water bottle. I needed to get that bottle. So I started walking towards the fire. 
Both the man and the woman were yelling for me to stay back. Sure, sure get, back. get back. Sure, 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 sure stand, back. stand back. I grabbed the bottle. And as I walked back, they knew what was happening. And the woman looked me in the eye and goes, Don't you move. I could see fire trucks and police coming over the horizon. This was it. I was fucked. The cops got out and started asking us what happened. The woman immediately stepped forward and said, Sir, this man got out of his car and grabbed that bottle. I said, yes, that's true. I grabbed the bottle. He grabbed the bottle. I grabbed the bottle. Why'd you grab that bottle? Sir, I saw him grab that bottle. Why would you grab that bottle, son? What were you doing with that bottle? Okay, I started this fire. I did it. It was my fault. I'm sorry. I'm so, so sorry. I'm so sorry. Eddie was still back next to the car. He had FaceTimed his friend, the CEO. That's what we call him. His real name is Dayton. Long story. But they were both in disbelief. But I was living at Eddie's family's house at the time. I was also much older than him, much more experienced. His parents trusted me with their son. There was absolutely no way I was going to let him take the blame for this. I hoped that maybe they would cover my expenses if I were to get arrested or whatever. I started to explain to the officer what happened as the fire truck started to work on the fire. They read me my rights, put me in handcuffs, and threw me in the back of the cop car. I couldn't believe it. I waited until I was a full-on adult to commit the crime of a 10-year-old. And I had done yoga that morning. I bet you that statistically speaking, not many people have been arrested the same day that they took a yoga class. I had also never been arrested in my life. I had dodged a couple close calls as a teenager, you know, escaping into the woods at parties or having friends take responsibilities for contraband that was theirs in a car or literally escaping the cops once in a high-speed pursuit where one of our friends left his phone on by accident and his parents heard the whole thing and escorted us home one by one. But it appeared that finally it had caught up with me, I guess. For the most part, I was definitely a law-abiding citizen. Anyway, there I was, in jail. They gave me orange Crocs to wear, and I sat there in my cell. At least I was alone. I was in the middle of nowhere in Colorado. It would have been worse if there was some other weird dude in my cell or multiple people in my cell, you know? But the jail was connected to a prison, and at one point there was some kind of riot happening in the prison, and the guards had to run to check it out. So I was virtually alone for a second. There might have been one guy still there, I don't, I don't remember. Anyway, I said, went in Rome, and I started banging out push-ups. Whoever was at the desk at any given time kept asking me about my friend, who would be posting my bail. I thought, I hoped, Eddie. Just like in the movies, I got one phone call, and I had to call my buddy Phil, who's Eddie's brother, because he's the fixer. This guy gets shit done. I had known him since he was 12, and even then, he could wiggle his way into a restaurant that had a four-hour wait. I literally watched him do that once. I called him and he was at lunch with his family in the Hamptons. I was terrified of making this call, as you might imagine. He was with both of his parents and Ricky and Julie from episode one of this podcast, who I stay with in Florida. When I explained to them what had happened, there was a brief pause. And then I heard all of them start dying of laughter. 
that made me feel so much better because I was afraid that they were going to be so mad at me. Now, that's the funny thing about New York to me. People are just pretty pragmatic about stuff in general, especially if they have money. I grew up fearing being arrested, no matter what. If you got arrested, it was serious and it wasn't funny. There was no distinction between what was a stupid arrest or not. For whatever reason, they found this very amusing. I spoke to Phil's father on the phone, who assured me that the $800 bail would be no problem and that they would get me a great lawyer, nothing to worry about. Well, not quite nothing to worry about because I was facing three charges. I think it was either second or third degree arson, which is a misdemeanor, fortunately. I didn't damage any buildings or do much damage in general, or it would have been a felony. I hope that people are a little less angry at me knowing that I at least was smart enough to do this in the middle of nowhere. No excuse, but still, a little bit better. I also got charged with illegal use of fireworks and one other thing that I can't remember. I was expecting to have to pay a crazy fine. I was sort of preparing to be completely screwed for my entire life. But I thought, at least, thank God Eddie's family was going to help me out. Now, I think this is a good lesson. And I think I realized this before it had happened to me, but it seemed like every person that I knew who had ever gotten arrested, they initially thought that their life was over. And inevitably, your life isn't over. You can definitely come back from it, depending on what you did. But if you get arrested for something... You likely will just have to pay the piper or do whatever they said you have to do, you know, fulfill your sentence, and then hopefully your life can resume. Anyway, Eddie was in the lobby of the jail on the phone with his parents and friends and whoever the hell he was talking to, but he just wouldn't get off the phone. And that was a problem. They had started to process my paperwork, but the guy working there eventually came over to me, gave me a juice box, told me I could watch TV on the couch. I chose tennis. So now I'm watching the senior tour on some Fox Sports Syndicate channel in Madison Square Garden. It was McEnroe versus Mark Philippoussis. It was like a surreal moment. But anyway, the guy told me, since I couldn't get your friend's attention and now I have to leave, you're going to have to start the process of being booked over. I'm sorry. I was like, dude, you couldn't tell him to get off the phone. You're a cop. He would listen to you. Anyway, the next guy came in and had to book me all over. He made sure to say to me, heh, it's raining. You should have waited till now to light off all them fireworks. <laughs> I was like, very funny, dude. I ended up having to hire this attorney from Steamboat Springs, which was a couple hours away. He cost about $6,000, all paid for by Eddie's parents, thank God. I would call the lawyer and be like, could you tell them Julio Gallerati called? And I would spell my first name. And then they go, can you spell your last name? And I was just thinking, are you serious? There's no way there's another Julio that's one of your clients. But okay, yeah, sure. When all was said and done, I ended up on probation for an entire year. I wasn't allowed within 100 miles of the side of the fire. Every time I would enter the country, I would get detained alongside suspected terrorists and the like. But no fine, thank God. I just had to do 80 hours of community service, which I did through the Gotham Comedy Foundation, whose founder later severed ties with me over this indiscretion. Though I did quite a lot of good stuff for that foundation performing for old people and cancer patients and the like. Whatever. After three court hearings over the phone, $6,000 and a year of probation, it was wiped and expunged from my record. Thank God. I remember talking to the attorney at first, and he was like, well, does it matter to you if you have a criminal record? What's your future like? I was like, excuse me? Are you serious? Having a record is not an option. Hello? Well, I would like for it not to be an option, at least. I can't imagine anybody answering this question any differently. 
Fortunately, I had a choice. Eddie's dad gave me the good advice of getting someone local who knew the judge. This seemed like brilliant insight at first, but I realized later that was a pretty standard move. Another thing I found funny was that pot had just become legal there. I could have been taking a bong rip in the middle of the street and no one could have said anything. I don't know why I assumed fireworks were fine everywhere. It's by far the stupidest shit I've ever done. I wouldn't do it again. Please, please, please be careful with fireworks. Anyway, fast forward to present day. I'm a new and better man, and it was good to not be in jail this time driving through Colorado. Soon enough, I was in Nebraska. The total duration of the trip from Wakini, Kansas to Scotts Bluff in northwestern Nebraska would be about six hours. So if I made decent time, which I would, I'd get there right around noon. The first two-thirds of the drive were more of the same. The occasional pasture, small towns, farms, silos, and flat land. But right around 11 a.m., I started to see the first sightings of rock formations and some hills. Very exciting moment. I knew the trip was about to become gorgeous. I had been eating protein bars for breakfast for the most part. I bought seven or eight before the trip started, and I had one or two more. Crushed a Quest bar along the way. Anyway, soon enough it was 11 a.m., and I was officially arriving to the Scotts Bluff National Monument in Garing, Nebraska. It's a beautiful giant rock formation in a series of rocks and jagged mountains, something Alex Honnell from Free Solo would climb. Right out front was one of those carriages from the Oregon Trail. I think that's how you're supposed to say it, like when referring to the trail and not the state. I don't know, that's a classic thing that kids in high school would say, and you'd hear it everywhere, but there was no indication it was factual. It was just something everyone said, so you assumed it was true. Like I said, I know the state is Oregon. Now, of course, everyone replied to my Instagram story being like, don't get cholera. It's hilarious when people think they're being clever, but they're just saying the same thing everyone else is saying. I guess that goes for comedians too. There was no entry fee, and the lady told me that if I chose to hike up, there were a bunch of snakes out there, so be careful. First time I've ever really heard that on a hike. I know I've said before that I was a fairly experienced hiker, but... I've just never hiked anywhere where there was a ton of snakes. I didn't love it, but she was like, stay on the path and you'll be fine. That's the beauty of national parks, in my opinion. There are just experts around at your convenience so that you can enjoy nature with a bit less to worry about. But obviously you should still be careful. The Saddle Rock Trail was three miles. And today I only had two destinations. So I was definitely down to do a badass hike. This hike took you all the way up the mountain, too. The bluff is significant because it was a stop on many historic trails, not just the Oregon. It's near the Mormon Trail, as well as many others. It's one of those things that's probably famous just because it looks so sick, also. The bluffs just tower over you, 800 feet straight up. Time to hit it. But first, I had to pee. I assumed that the bathrooms were closed, since the visitor center was closed. So I went in a corner, next to a building, where there was no one around, 
not on the building, but right near its base so that it wouldn't be in the middle of anyone's walking path, but also wouldn't be on the building. Fairly considerate public urination. I felt it was a semi-respectful approach. Anyway, after 10 seconds of peeing, I was like three quarters of the way done. Two guys walk out of the office, literally 20 feet away from me. I hear, hey, what are you doing over there? I turn around, pull up my pants, and immediately start saying, on brand, and similarly to Colorado, when I just got caught red-handed, I got ahead of it. I just went, I'm sorry, guys. I was peeing. I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have been doing that. I thought that the bathrooms were closed. Seriously, I'm really sorry. That's unacceptable. And they were kind of like, okay with that answer. I feel like I actually diffused things. And they just said, sir, the outhouses are open. And as I walked away, I kept being like, sorry, sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I was hoping that the girl at the front didn't hear about this. We had established a friendly rapport. How embarrassing. <laughs> I started to get PTSD of a time in middle school when I got caught peeing on the school. One of the janitors just yelled out the window from the second floor, Hey kid, you peeing over there? I sprinted off into the darkness and have never forgotten that moment of embarrassment. I posted something kind of funny on my story about the encounter. I just got caught peeing on a national park building. I feel really guilty about it. <laughs> I mean, the visitor center is closed, so I just figured no one was there or whatever. But the park rangers came out. They're like, sir, can we help you? And I was just like, I was peeing. I'm really sorry. That was fucked up by me. The walk up the bluff was steep, and it took a while. Definitely a little harder than any of the hikes I had done recently. I'd been doing mostly nature trails on Long Island, and even the stuff earlier on this trip had been pretty flat. The path up consisted mostly of narrow trails along the bluff, circling around until you make it to the top. I felt like one of those goats from planet Earth that are just standing on tiny little grooves of rock on an otherwise straight up and down mountain face. It was a pretty steep drop off off the side of the little path. There were a couple little archways where you could walk straight through the mountain. It kind of looked like the opening in the mountain where the train goes through when Wiley e. Coyote is chasing the Roadrunner. That opening where the Roadrunner paints it onto the side of the mountain and the coyote just smashes right into it. Same shape. Meep, meep. I made it to the top and the view was incredible. You could also drive to the top too. There was a parking lot up there, but the hike seemed more fun. It was really hot and I was feeling it more than I expected. Well into the 90s, closing in on 100. Coming down, when I walked through the tunnel that takes you through the mountain, I saw a guy in front of me who I had seen earlier. This guy was taking pictures, and he seemed like he was a little odd. He was a young guy, pretty average looking, wearing a bucket hat and a backpack, and maneuvering around the landscape snapping shots. I tried to speed past him on the way up, but on the way down, here I was with him right in front of me. And he was walking slow enough that I caught up with him, but fast enough that if I tried to walk past him, it would come off as aggressive. Especially because the walkway through the mountain is narrow enough that you can't stand side by side. So there was no way for me to pass by him without it being kind of awkward. So I kind of wandered up to him and I asked him a question because it felt too awkward not to. I had lost the game of chicken of who will speak first. <laughs> I asked if he had taken any good picks. He said he had. Then he said some stuff I didn't understand about photography. He actually talked exactly how I thought he would. You know, one of these guys who thinks he knows what you're talking about when you don't. I had no idea. But then he said he was up in Theodore Roosevelt National Park in North Dakota last year, and there's similar structures and all that. I thought it was cool that he had mentioned it because I was planning on going there this trip as well. 
I didn't ask any more about it though because he gave me an out by stopping to take some pictures. I don't know if he did it on purpose to make the convo more comfortable for both of us or if it was a coincidence, but regardless, I booked it past him. When I made it down and walked the remaining 1,200 feet on the flat path leading to the parking lot, I saw a cop and a woman standing at the end of the path. I was like, imagine if this cop stopped me to talk to me about the peeing. Now, I knew maybe I was being paranoid, but I started running the various scenarios in my head. Maybe he would arrest me. Maybe he would give me a fine. I didn't like any of the possible outcomes. And it didn't help that I'd been thinking about arrests and getting arrested the whole morning. I saw the woman lean in and say something to him while pointing in my direction. I could only imagine it was her saying, yep, that's him. He kind of then pointed in my direction also, sort of like he was making sure. Him, right? To which she maybe said, oh yeah, 100% final answer. That's him, all right. I was still about 75 yards away at this point. I got closer and closer. The cop took a step in my direction. Oh my God. And then he threw something in the garbage can. And then he turned around and walked away. Phew. I officially added peeing in public to the list of things that I will never do again along with fireworks. I was just learning lesson after lesson out here on the road. My girlfriend Hillary had mentioned to me that if she got a tattoo, it would be a cute little heart, somewhere in between the back and the side of her upper arm. I liked what she had drawn. I thought maybe I would get it too. Now, when she said, if I would, she meant if she was going to ever get a tattoo, because she was never going to. Just wanted to make it clear that I wasn't like stealing her idea. She was just kind of saying like, if I were to get a tattoo, which I won't, this is kind of cool. I wanted to try to maybe get that tattoo to surprise her while I was on this trip. I hadn't gotten a tattoo for her yet, and I get tattoos of girls. I'm the girl tattoo guy. Sounds crazy, but I've done it a few times, and it's not a big deal at this point. So much so that Hillary actually didn't want me to get her name because I already have names of other girls on me. <laughs> it's a crazy thing to say out loud. Anyway, more on that later. Next stop was Agate. Not that far away. It was about 50 miles and should take about an hour to get to. I was feeling okay up to this point, and every time I didn't, I would just pound some Dayquil, which seemed to be working. The chest pain thing had seemed to completely go away. I had adjusted the way that I was holding the steering wheel, and it was probably that. I got to the agate fossil bed soon after. There were some hikes, but there didn't seem to be much hiking per se, more of like trails. And I had already done a pretty dope hike today, and I was starting to feel a little bit tired. I would definitely explore still, but more of just driving around. The fossil beds were vast plains, with some hills and some badland-esque rock formations, but like low plateaus, not pointy tops or anything too jagged or high. You could just picture what it would look like if dinosaurs were roaming around on these prehistoric looking plains. It was pretty cool. Small hills and green grass with big stone plateaus about half a mile in distance from the road. My brother had mentioned that this area had some of the best fossil hunting in the world, 
I was laughing thinking about him being like, these here lands are ripe for finding you a dinosaur. <laughs> I could see him saying that to be funny. So yeah, this was beautiful and subtly unique looking terrain. Gorgeous and peaceful. Nobody around. There were about a dozen people in Scott's Bluff, which actually felt like a lot. Had about three more hours to go of this nine-hour drive. I made sure to get out of the car and take in the air. Looked around for a little while, but now it was time to get moving. I was remembering that panther sign I saw in Florida. Nuts how many different types of nature I had gone through. It was truly awesome. At 3.15, about an hour later, I found myself hitting a little spot on the side of the road. It was called Q's Dairy Suite in Crawford, Nebraska. Pretty close to the border of South Dakota, with those beautiful rolling hills that I hadn't seen in a few years. It would be nice to be back. But Q's was cool. It was mostly like an ice cream place where you walk up to the window and order. Pretty standard setup. You can hang around the parking lot, I guess, if you wanted, eat sitting on your car or whatever. I think there were picnic tables. It's kind of unclear what people do, but it looked like they might do that. I decided to go inside and check it out though. It was awesome. The side room looked like the inside of somewhere you would eat at a small resort in nature somewhere. There were a couple tables, one with benches, with that sort of tough checkered tablecloth that felt more like a mat. Red benches, some ceiling fans, a wall unit air conditioner, and a stone floor like painted concrete. I walked in through the saloon doors to get to the bar and counter. There stood the lady, who I gathered was Q, who owned the spot, cooking at the grill and making ice cream. I heard people call her Q pretty quickly, which is how I came to that conclusion, that she was Q. She must have been like 55 or 60, was running around and sweating, assembling five Sundays quickly and efficiently, working hard. I ordered a burger and parked down at the bar. This lady and her friend came in and asked if they could buy some of her potato salad by the pound. They were having some kind of party in their backyard. Nice local ladies, must have been in their 60s. They were chatting about local stuff. The lady said to her friend, you know, normally I would order an ice cream, but trying to watch my weight, a very wholesome combo about self-improvement goals. But then, five minutes later, the lady came back in without her friend and ordered an ice cream sundae. How sneaky. I wondered if they had both gotten into their cars, about to drive off, and this lady pretended that suddenly she had a phone call to make as her friend pulled out. She waved, waiting for her to get out of sight. And once the coast was clear, she went back in to do the dirty deed of getting a big old ice cream sundae. <laughs> the girl who I presumed was Q's daughter had come back and they were talking about her kid and her husband and the little day-to-day -day stuff. I always love when families stay close together like that. It made me miss my family. I had a cheeseburger with a side salad, trying to be good about the fries. It was solid, definitely not the place you order a side salad, but whatever, the burger was good. The lady kind of reminded me of my mom a bit, Q. And I felt bad for her that she was busting her ass so much in this heat at her age. So I made sure I gave her a very solid tip. Like the tip was more than the whole meal cost. And I actually wasn't sure if she noticed. But I reminded myself that a good deed is for the good deed's sake, not to make me feel better about myself. 
But anyway, I highly recommend checking out Q's if you want an authentic mom and pop experience. She had the classic Coca-Cola headed diner menu with the little do-it-yourself letter system, all blue letters, and most of the diner classics, including a pizza burger, which I hadn't heard of, but seems straightforward. The griddles and fryers were right below. There was a string hanging above with a clothespin type of thing, like to hang up your orders, sort of like a zip line for orders. Very classic spot. Wish I had gotten ice cream. So far on this trip, no dessert, which was the one thing that I had going for me diet-wise, because otherwise I was not eating healthy. And the trip was almost over, so I think it's fair to say at this point that I did not eat healthy at all. <laughs> I was getting close-ish to Rapid City, and I saw them big, dark clouds coming in. I wanted to try to beat that. I pulled into the hotel, the Hotel Alex Johnson, another Hilton buying an OG hotel situation, my favorite. The dark clouds seemed to be imminently on course to swallow the hotel whole. This hotel was pretty quirky. Hilton owned, similar to the hotel in OKC. It seemed to have been there for a while, which is always cool. Turned out the hotel has been there about 100 years. Inside, it looks kind of like a hunting lodge, something Theodore Roosevelt would have visited. In fact, according to the photos of notable visitors on the wall, it appears he did visit. On the wall in the lobby, they had kind of a wall of fame, kind of like something they would do in a pizza restaurant. Except at the pizzerias, the pictures always have some guy in them who's presumably the owner of the pizzeria, who's never actually at the restaurant. So it's kind of weird. My hotel room was small, but nice. I desperately needed a good night's sleep. But after such a long drive and such a long day, a couple drinks were in order. Now, no one, and I mean no one, were wearing masks here. First place I had been where it was very, very loose. None of the employees or people in this packed hotel were wearing anything. It was a little stressful. My buddy Sean Leary had mentioned to me that this part of South Dakota hadn't really been affected by COVID yet, which is why it was so lax. Sioux Falls had gotten it badly in the beginning, but that was way east, about six hours away. Now, as I record this podcast, we all know what ended up happening with the Dakotas with COVID spiking crazily. So after seeing how lax it was a few months earlier, the outcome wasn't super surprising. I saw people taking bicycles in and out of their rooms, which seemed odd, but I guess there's probably a lot of good outdoorsy activities to be done around here. I decided to hit the rooftop bar. Tequila sodas at a nice hotel for $7 each, pretty damn competitive pricing. The rooftop bar was cool and overlooked downtown Rapid City and some of the magnificent surrounding areas. I had a couple drinks, looked at the cool fire pit and tried eavesdropping on a couple convos. Two drinks had me sufficiently buzzed and I decided to hit Tally Silver Spoon across the street for dinner. There's a ton of cool outdoor stuff in that area. 
I had an extremely ambitious day planned for tomorrow, driving in all sorts of directions. But Rapid City is a place you could go for a week and have plenty of amazing things to do. It's not just Mount Rushmore. I went across the street to Tally's and got a seat outside, despite the pitch black cloud heading in our direction. The guy pouring my water was likely a native, and I looked around and noticed a bunch of people who were likely natives as well, hanging on the street, including a group of guys sitting on a bench who appeared to be on drugs or drunk and were being loud and causing commotion. There was some other native guy with a long ponytail, baggy jeans, sunglasses, his clothes were filthy, being extremely loud trying to bum cigarettes off of everybody. It was a pretty sad sight. Now, I know that the natives have a bad history with alcoholism and obesity, and I've always wondered why. I've also heard that they are extremely sensitive emotionally and very sweet, kind, and delicate people with a propensity for art and an old-fashioned kind of patience. I've heard that the alcohol thing is because European settlers introduced alcohol to their culture for the first time. And while our genes have had generations to adapt and adjust to the literal poison that is alcohol, natives didn't have the same luxury, and thus they can't really handle drinking. I had only heard this, so I wanted to make sure I researched it a bit. And it appeared to be a fairly commonly noted theory about the situation. Apparently they had alcohol, but typically only used it for rituals. The idea of casual and social drinking was introduced by Europeans. Another contributing theory is that Native Americans have passed down unparalleled trauma through generations of having their culture and way of life erased. I thought about how sad that was. It's also kind of hard to substantiate, but it does sound like it makes a lot of sense. I couldn't help but pity these people as I just saw them sitting in the street. Even if they look sketchy and are being extremely loud and annoying. And these guys were wasted. Like, imagine the most wasted college kids you've ever seen and multiply that by two. This one guy looked like he had just fallen down drunk and smashed his face. He was literally bleeding out of his face. And like sitting around laughing, smoking cigarettes, just flailing. It's also important to point out that not all natives are the same. Natives in Alaska, for example, have a far lower rate of alcohol-related deaths than other tribes, but they still have issues, especially related to birth defects. But apparently, Northern Plains Indians, which is where I was, in South Dakota, have among the highest rate of alcohol-related problems. In the nearby Pine Ridge Reservation, there is 89% unemployment, and two-thirds of adults suffer from alcoholism. The suicide rate is four times the national rate. Alcohol is technically banned on the reservation, even though prohibition was technically lifted in 2013. Regardless of all of this, there appears to be a deadly cocktail of poverty, mental illness, depression, and possibly more that we can't figure out. In fact, I stumbled upon dozens of articles outlining studies trying to figure out why the natives have such an unusual dependence on alcohol. What other factors might be contributing? Because it seems like something is off. Alcohol seems to affect them way more than the average person in a scientific way, not just some emotional trauma angle. If you Google Native Americans with enough different keywords, all sorts of different tragedies will pop up, from genocide to boarding school tragedies to crime, alcohol, and drug abuse. It's a very sad part of the country's history. I think in the future when I have enough money, I'll try to donate to causes to help bolster the Native community. 
I went to the bathroom after eating my french fries at Tally's Silver Spoon. And when I came back, my place was cleared. The busboy had cleared it by accident. Normally, I would have been very annoyed by this, but I just felt bad for this guy, being a native, in a place where they clearly have it rough. So he definitely earned more slack with me than he may have otherwise gotten. He also never brought me a glass or a fork either. But in his defense, he was super busy, the restaurant was packed, and they were likely understaffed. I hadn't eaten a bison burger yet on this trip, and there was one on the menu, so it seemed like it could be the move. The people up here looked a little different than the typical white people I was used to seeing in the Northeast. I know they say that the Northern Plains and such were settled by Scandinavian people, so not surprising that there were a lot of tall, big, blonde men. Just not the same typical crowd you see in the Northeast. There were these people next to me talking about the upcoming Trump rally at Mount Rushmore. The mother asked her son if he wanted to go. I couldn't tell if she was joking, but the kid was a little shit for sure. The dad was bald, sort of muscular for a guy older than 55, but also maybe not really. Maybe he was just like naturally built on top. The son was wearing a big chain link necklace, shorts, and looked to kind of be a physical specimen. He must have been like 18. And he was talking to his dad about how fast his car could go. He seemed like the classic kid who was gonna grow up to be a dick just like his dad. <laughs> and I actually didn't hear his dad speak, but the kid was so obnoxious that I just assumed that the dad must not be great. This was a pretty fancy restaurant for the area, it seemed. The same meals would cost two or three times more in New York City. I was looking at the menu and I decided that the chef's tasting menu could be the move, even though I really wanted the bison burger. It was a three-course meal of basically whatever the chef wanted to make it. This restaurant had fine food to a degree. It was kind of like a mix of American fare mixed with French-inspired dishes. That's my personal take on it. The restaurant describes itself as a modern take on classic fine dining, so I wasn't too far off. I asked the waiter if the chef would be upset if I ordered a side of waffle fries in addition to my prefix situation. The waiter assured me that it would be no big deal. I don't like people who get upset when the chef doesn't let them change things. You know, I think, you know, you're at this restaurant, you should trust the chef. Sure, you know what you like, but have some imagination for Christ's sake, like really? Broaden your horizons. I've heard stories of people that I know proudly telling me how their parents told off the chef when they couldn't substitute cheeses or get a side of fries instead, or if they were unwilling to make chicken parmesan. Like, give me a break. The manager was an interesting looking fellow. He had two bar earrings and two hoop earrings and was clearly a chain smoker, but was incredibly focused and running around the restaurant making things happen and making sure that everything was going according to plan. Love to see. And I wasn't like profiling him as a guy who was incapable of doing that. I'm just not used to seeing a guy who looks like that in that type of role. At least I never have. Anyway, my fries came out way before anything else came out and they were really, really good. They came with some kind of onion dip. The waffle fries were so orange that if you were 20 feet away, you might think that they were orange peels. Finally, my first course arrived, a herring gazpacho. Maybe my favorite cold soup, like gazpacho in general. I had never had it with the fish. My mom made a grossed out face when I told her about it. <laughs> the soup itself looked maybe like it had beets in it, since it was a purplish color. Of course, the classic cucumbers, onions, and tomatoes chopped up to make a typical gazpacho plus a fresh piece of herring in the middle. It was sweet and savory and delicious. 
When I went to the bathroom, I was impressed by the whichever sign on both bathroom doors, which was like a fusion of the conventional bathroom signs for both a man and a woman, potentially representing trans people as well. South Dakota seemed to be potentially very conservative, which I gather by the fact that it's a red state, and also the upcoming Trump rally at Mount Rushmore a few days in the future, and the no masks, which unfortunately had become a politicized issue. I personally hate unisex bathrooms, just because I'm like less comfortable knowing that I need to leave it extra presentable since a woman might be standing right outside waiting to use it next. But regardless, I appreciated the progressive take on using the banyo. You know, if there's one bathroom, it's easier for it to be unisex, but two, you could easily have one be men's and one be women's, so this seemed like a conscious choice by the restaurant. One thing I've noticed that I don't think is a secret is that even in the most conservative states or places, there tend to be some very liberal pockets, typically in like the metropolitan areas, which makes sense. Like when you see and are exposed to so many different types of people, I can only imagine that your compassion for others must grow as a general concept, right? Anyway, next dish was a refreshing summer salad with two big, perfectly cooked shrimp on top. On the side was a kind of feta reduction sauce situation. I typically curse the idea of cheese and fish together in any capacity, even when my friends put it on top of like seafood pasta. But in this situation, I was down to trust the chef and it was very good. Course three was a pork belly with some kind of reduction sauce, wild mushrooms, and sweet potato. It was incredible. They were either behind or forgot about me because the meal took about an hour and a half. But they thanked me for my patience and the meal was only 45 bucks for a three course prefix gourmet meal plus a side of fries. I was very happy to wait. I wanted to do more, but I was so tired. Around 9.30 p.m., I hit my room, called my girl, watched a bit more of the Lance Armstrong doc, and passed out. Had a long day ahead of me. On the next episode of Pack Light, I end up on a scavenger hunt of sites across North Dakota. I see the most unexpected treasure of the trip, and I get a tattoo inspired by my girlfriend in Wyoming. Check out my YouTube channel for the entire episode, along with a soothing visual accompaniment. And check out the Instagram, at PackLightPics, for some videos and pictures of the stuff from this episode, and also for a checklist of all the stops that I made if you want to try to do a similar trip yourself. There's a link to my playlist in the episode description as well. Message me on my Instagram, at NotJulio, that's N-O-T-J-U-L-I-O, and let me know your thoughts and suggestions and just anything you want to say to me. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for taking the time to hang out. Enjoy the rest of your day.